If you have your Bible, Mark chapter 9. We're in a series in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in this series for many months. We will be in this series uh, in the Gospel of Mark right up into Easter. Of course, culminating in the resurrection of Jesus. If you would, if, you, if, if this is helpful to you, you can put a finger at Mark 9 and then flip over to Matthew 17. You don't have to do this. We're not going to walk all the way through Matthew 17, but Matthew 17 is the same account of the transfiguration of Jesus, which is what we're going to talk about. Big word, but we're going to break this thing down today. And the reason we're going to reference Matthew is because, as I mentioned in a previous sermon, Matthew tends to give us more detail. So if I was to ask you a story, some of you are going to just going to give more detail. My wife is more detailed. She, she pays attention better than I do. So if you ask her and you ask me, give me the account of the same situation, her account's going to be, uh, it's going to be better. At least it's going to have more specifics, all right? I'm going to be like, I, I honestly don't recall half of it, and I want to just get to the point. I'm going to give you the point. I'm going to give you the summary. That's what happens in these Gospels. And just, if you're new to the Scriptures, and you're like, hey, there's, okay, there's four Gospels that start the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but th- there's a lot of the same stories. Why is the Bible repeating the same stuff? You ever thought that? Hey, didn't I read this in another gospel? It's a, it's a little different take on it. Because here's, 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 how, here's how it plays out. We're together in this room this morning. Okay? We're encountering the same thing. We're witnessing the same thing. But as we walk out, my friend Ricky, uh, he might make note of different things than I would. So he might just be like, honestly, why do they not turn the lights off so I, uh, up so I can actually read my Bible? It's too dark in here. He may make note of that. My friend Ben might be like, I'm pretty sure Robbie wears that hoodie every week. What's the deal? Okay. You know, Barry Barry may make mention of the gospel that we're reading, right? Seth may make mention of the, the songs that we sang. I don't know, but these are, you have four different accounts of the same event. You, you tracking with me right there? Does that, that make sense to you? So in Mark, he's concise. He's to the point. Uh, he tends to summarize. By the way, and this is, this is worth noting, and we've said this before, the Gospel of Mark is not Mark's account, rather Peter's account. Mark works for Peter. Mark was a scribe. Peter moves quickly. If you know anything about Peter in the Bible, uh, he says what he thinks, and uh, he doesn't mince words, and he doesn't do that in the Gospel. So instead of calling it the Gospel of Peter, this is Peter's account, but John Mark, or Mark, wrote it down for him. That's why we get the Gospel of Mark. Okay. Uh, before we read the, the passage, this is what I want to say to you. Uh, the, the, the Gospel of Mark is broken up into two halves. Not formally, but if you look at the first half of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 through 8, it really is, who is Jesus, right? Not only are the disciples trying to figure this out, but so is everybody else. So as Jesus begins his ministry, we, uh, starting with his baptism in chapter 1, God showing up, descending, the Spirit descending like a cloud, and God saying, that's my, that's my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Immediately you're like, okay, Son of God, who is this? What is happening? First eight chapters is, who is this? Of course, in chapter 8, as Pastor Curtis said last week, He asked the disciples, who do you say I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter answers what? You are the Christ. And he says, but I've not come to rule or to reign. I've actually come to die. And this begins this this, uh, turning point in this gospel. 
Peter, it says, pulled Jesus aside. And he, it, it, Mark tells it like this. He pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. That's not going to end well, right? It actually says then Jesus rebukes him and calls him Satan, right? And he says, you're not getting what I'm saying to you. You're distracted. You're distracted. And so thus begins chapter 9. And so here's what I'd like you to do. Um, The first verse of chapter 9 really is a continuation of chapter 8. Connects the two chapters. But I want you to start in verse 2. And I want you to read through verse 8. And I'd like you, if you have a copy to read in the Bible, if you, look, if you do not, that's great. Just look around and see who does and kind of peer over their shoulder. And then as I often do, I just want to invite you to read this out loud. We're Mark 9, verse 2 through 8. You read it out loud and then we'll come back together. Go for it. Okay, let's go together. Verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Here's a couple quick things. We're going to move quick. There's a lot to cover here. Six days in the Old Testament, that's symbolic. Six days was typically the amount of time that you uh, would prepare in order to receive revelation. So six days of preparation leading to uh, an encounter with God where he might reveal something to you. So that's not just a bonus or happenstance. Jesus tells his disciples, look, I'm going to have to die. These guys are totally confused. They're upset. They're perplexed. We thought you were coming as a king to rule, to reign, to overthrow governments. And he's, you're going to die? And so they're, they're left. And Jesus, recognizing in them the great need for him to pull them close, he pulls the three disciples that he is closest to. And he pulls them in. And after six days of preparation. He says, come with me up to the mountain. And who goes with him? Peter, James, and John. And they're led up a high mountain. I don't, it's no secret. If you've opened your Bible at all, I promise you could almost flip. Uh, with, if you did that 10 times, you might find a place where someone goes up to the mountain to meet God. It happens all the time. And so again, that's not just, well, there just happened to be a mountain close by. No, this is a, this is a repeated pattern in the scriptures, which, uh, you know, I, I Begs the question, do we need to start Bayou City Fellowship, Colorado? Like, we need to do that. We need to go to them. We need to work on that. Jesus is saying to these guys, let's go up to the mountain. That's a repeated pattern in the scriptures. Uh, The end of verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. All right, what is happening right here? So transfigure, that's an English word that we get from the Greek word metamorpho. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but that's not hard to figure out. Metamorpho, that's how we get metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is from the inside out. It's not an external that causes internal change. Metamorphosis is actually the, the revealing of what is inside. You follow that? And so Jesus, he's transfigured before them. And if you had your finger in Matthew, feel free to be flipping back and forth to Matthew 17. But he gives us some detail. His face is radiating. Mark and Matthew both both tell us his clothes are, are the brightest white you can imagine. So he takes these three. They walk up the mountain. And then, boom, Jesus is lit up. All right, right in front of these guys. This is a powerful moment in the scriptures. If you remember in Exodus 34, if you know the Old Testament at all, this is, this is worth looking into. It's, it's fascinating. But uh, uh, God had called Moses up a mountain, Mount Sinai. He said, I want to meet with you up on the mountain. 
and he encountered God. He did not encounter him fully. If you, if you look into this, he actually says, show me your glory. And, and God says, if I showed you my full glory, uh, you, would, you would basically melt. You would disintegrate. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a little bit of a flyby, a walk by. And you're going to hide. And I'm going to show you just a little bit of my back. That's all you can handle. But what happens is Moses descends the mountain. And he's walking around with the Israelites and do you remember what happens? They, they approach Moses and they look him in the face and they say what? Your face is, do you remember this? It's glowing, right? There's a glow on your face. So much so that Moses then uh, wore a veil. Much like you would see a, uh, a widow, uh, you know, at a, a veil to, to, to guard the face, right? He wore this veil. What's happening in, in Exodus 34 is Moses is not radiating from the inside out. Like there's not been a metamorphosis of Mo- Moses is not part God. What happened is Moses uh, sat in the presence, just uh, getting a glimpse of the glory of God. He was reflecting that, right? So just as the moon, this still just blows my mind. I love just, I love when the moon is, a, it's a full moon and you look up and you see the moon and I don't know about you, maybe I'm weird, but I just imagine myself walking around on that thing. That's just me, but like one day that'd be awesome. All right. So when I see a full moon, the moon is not lit up. The moon is not radiating. The moon is not shining. The moon is reflecting the light of the sun back to earth. Looks like it's shining. This was Moses. He was reflecting the light transfigured, metamorpho, it's not a reflection. So Jesus is not on this mountain and somehow God is shining down on him and then he's reflecting that at the disciples. No, actually what happens is there's a peeling back and Jesus is saying, this is actually who I am. With this skin on, let me show you my, my, tr- my true self. Kent Hughes says it like this. I love this quote. Show me that, Stacy, if you got that. For a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted. So the, the, the veil being the skin, he's human. He's got this skin on, so he's not been radiating. And so for a brief moment, that veil is lifted, and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory which always in the depths of his being rose to the surface for that one time in his earthly life. Make note of that. You're not going to open the New Testament and find this happening elsewhere. This has not been a common occurrence for Jesus to reveal who he truly is. Or put another way, he slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory. This is who Jesus always was. It was a glance back, but also a look forward into his future glory. This is a lot to wrap our minds around, right? This is who Jesus is at his core. It's who Jesus was eternal before. It is who Jesus will be eternal. So sometimes I imagine an encounter with Jesus as me in human flesh and Jesus in human flesh, but that's not fully accurate. So we will not encounter each other and, you know, uh, go in for the five and the, and the, you know, the half hug there. We will encounter the glory of God radiating. That is an eternal glory. That's a different scene in my mind when I meet Jesus. And it causes me to worship. We'll see that in this passage. 
This is the true Jesus, the Son of God, both in the past and in the future and in the present, though his humanity has hidden this glory. And what's powerful here is he has just gathered his disciples and said, here's what's going to happen to me. And he takes them on the mountain and he reveals his true self. And so they're still in the back of their mind going, wait, you are radiating. You are, I'm in the presence of God Almighty. And yet somehow I have to reconcile the fact that you just said you're going to be murdered. His face beamed. And yet Isaiah, the prophet, in, in his prophecy tells us that that's the very face that will be so beaten and disfigured that it's barely recognizable. I mean, it's a terrible thought. If I was to be beaten so badly, you just go, I don't even, that looks like Robbie, but I'm not positive. And that's what Isaiah is saying. Hey, that face that is beaming is the very face that will be beaten as he's led to the cross. Well, why is that important? Well, here's here's what I want you to catch this morning. Because one of the questions I had in this passage is, why is Jesus doing this? Like, what's the point? I mean, this is amazing. And I think outside of the miracle birth of Jesus, outside of uh, his uh, death and his resurrection and, of course, his ascension, I, I, I tend to think this is probably the fifth. If you're ranking these things, this is number five on the most powerful moments in the Scripture to me. We don't see this anywhere else. Why, so why is this happening, and why not do this in front of thousands of people? That was one of the thoughts I had. You got these three guys, your boys, up here. Why are they getting to see this and not anybody else? And I just, as I'm reflecting on this, I tend to think in light of the conversation they just had about his death, Jesus is providing comfort and he's providing context. Comfort in there will be a dark season coming, but it will not last. This is who I am and will be eternal. And then context. I am human. I came to earth, put skin on, but make no mistake about it. I am God. And let me show you the glory. Let me give you context here. We know that this encounter on this mountain with these disciples happened just four to five months prior to Jesus' uh, trial and his death and then his resurrection. So this is not a long uh, runway here. We're, we're, we're coming on the hills. This would have been in the fall. His, resur- his uh, death and resurrection would have been in the spring. And so he's giving comfort and context. Let's go to verse 4 if you're still with me. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And so this passage already is just packed. I mean, two verses in, and Mark has us, just, has us reeling. And then he just says, there's Jesus. He's beaming, clothes as white as could be, Moses, Elijah. And he kind of just drops that in our lap. And they're talking. What is, what's happening here? So let's just do maybe a two-minute, just kind of re, retrace our steps a little bit. In the Old Testament, you're going to hear us say the Old Covenant. We'll mention that maybe in other messages as, it, as it's appropriate in the Scriptures. There was an Old Covenant. And so when sin entered the world, we're separated from God. God made a way for us to access worship of Him because there was no way. We were separate. What He does, He says, Moses, I want you to help be the mediator here. I'm going to provide law. And through obedience, I'm going to give access to me. 
Praise be to God that that is not how you and I live, but this, is, this was the old covenant. And so through obedience, through these steps, this is how people will gain access to me. He actually appointed a high priest. It was Moses' brother, Aaron. He became the first high priest. And he said, you know what? Not everybody's going to be able to come and delight and worship me. I'm going to allow the high priest to come in. He will be a, a mediator as well. He'll be a go-between uh, because uh, the, the average man and average woman, you and I, we can't handle that, so we'll appoint a high priest. Moses represents a massive part of the Old Testament and of the scriptures. He is the law provider. So he's standing next to Jesus on atop this mountain. Who's on the other side? Elijah. Well, Elijah represents the prophets. So when you get to the Old Testament, there's many prophets who start to foretell of a new covenant. There is a new agreement, and that agreement is not based on obedience. It's not based on what you and I can do. But because of what Jesus will do for us, these prophets are saying there's going to be a new deal, and we are the winners of that deal. The sin that you and I carry around now is placed on Jesus. There will be a new covenant. These prophets, centuries before, are saying, hey, this is what's coming. So if you're keeping score here, in the old covenant, Moses and Elijah they really are, uh, uh, they're essential to, this, to this, this old agreement. They are the be, almost the beginning and end of that, that agreement, that covenant. And so it says to us that Jesus is standing there, and he has Moses on one side, and he has Elijah on the others. Keep in mind, Jesus says this, Matthew tells us that Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, what does that mean, right? So church talk, like how are you going to fulfill the law and the prophecy? And what happens is Matthew gives us insight. So Jesus is standing here, Elijah, Moses, and they're having a conversation. Mark tells us that much, but Matthew actually tells us the Greek word that he uses is they're having a lengthy conversation about Jesus' departure. They're not conversing about the mountains or the weather or how you've been for the last you know, couple hundred years. Thanks for showing up here. They are conversing about Jesus' departure. He is explaining to the lawgiver and to the one who would prophesy of a new covenant how that new covenant actually is going to take place. That's a powerful image right there. Jesus saying to Moses and to Elijah, I'm going to die. On, all, be, on all, all mankind's behalf, I'm going to die and I'll be raised from the dead. They're having a lengthy conversation together. Last thing I'll say on this. The symbolism here is powerful and actually it's more than symbolism. Moses was our go-between. He's our mediator. He gave us access to God. Jesus is explaining to Moses, hey, uh, that's no longer needed. Uh, I am going to be the mediator for eternity. I will be the mediator between man and God. Not only will I be the mediator, I will be the object of all worship. What we used to, we used to need, that we, we needed this obedience, we needed these rules, we, need, we had this system in place, and I'm telling you right now, on the top of this mountain, Elijah and Moses, it's no longer needed. I will be the go-between by the cross, and I will be the object of all worship. It's a, it's a powerful, it's a powerful moment. Verse five. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. 
And I just tend to think that this may be something Peter has like in his back pocket when uh, he just is not positive what to say. He just blurts this out like, hey, it's, this is good that we are here to, to witness the glory of God and Elijah. And my, I mean, this is a massive moment and somehow that's the language he puts. And it's powerful because he goes on to say, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Verse 6 tells us, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, right? <laughs> and that's funny. Here's what's funny about this. I didn't even catch this really even to this morning. That's funny to me. This is, that's Peter. This is Peter's account of what happened through Mark. And so I tend to just think Mark maybe tossed that in. Like Peter had no idea what to say. And this is what he said. And Peter is the one who jumps out of the boat. I want to walk on water. I want the faith to walk on water. And he gets distracted and he sinks. And he's encountering the glory of Jesus and Elijah, Moses, the whole thing. And he just begins to speak. And I don't know about you, but my wife, she would testify to this. But that's me. I just, if I get nervous, like I'm a talk. I don't know if you're a nervous talker. Uh, I'm also a planner, and so if I'm feeling like we need a plan, I'm going to blurt it out, even if it's the wrong plan, and that's what happens. So Peter just begins to say, hey, it's great that we're here with you, Jesus, and you know what we should do? Let's make a housing plan. Uh, Let's get you a tent. We're going to get you a tent. Everybody gets a tent. And he just starts speaking. He's got this plan going, and none of it really is making sense to, to Jesus. And what happens, Matthew actually tells us that. God interrupts Peter in the form of a cloud, right? And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you, you might do some research this week. It's fascinating just to see all the places in the scriptures where God Almighty appears in the form of a, of a cloud. It's powerful. And that's what happens in, this, uh, in the next verse. Uh, verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, and he said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Again, several of the Gospels just say God interrupted Peter's babbling, kind of rescued him from his own noise. And as a cloud, the the almighty God hovers over and he says, Peter, if we were going to paraphrase this, he just says, shut up, (laughs) right? And we don't say that in our house. My kids get in trouble, but for the sake of the sermon, that's what's happening, right? Shut up. And he says, that's, that's, my, that's my son. Listen to him. And I don't, I'm not going to speak for you, but that's, if God's speaking something to me repeatedly, it's probably, it, maybe he uses a little better language, I don't know, but just, hey, shut up for a little while and just listen to me. Because my prayer life is constantly me. I mean, I'm like Peter. I got stuff to say. I got places to be. I got plans. I want to make a plan for everything. And I just imagine God saying, would you just be still for a minute, be quiet, and listen, listen. And that's what happens. God uh, hovers as a cloud, says to Peter, listen to my son. Matthew's account, again, we're referencing that one quite a bit today. But Matthew's account of this story in chapter 17, and Matthew says that the, the three men fell on their faces And that would be our response. I mean, this is not some episode of Lost, okay? Any Lost fans? 
All, all five of you, thank you. This is not some weird episode of some uh, sci-fi show. This is not Arrival. Liz and I watched that. It's a great movie. Um, this is not some sci-fi. This is God, the presence of God as a cloud. And I guarantee you if that happened this morning, our response would not be uh, to even clap or to sing. Our response would be to, to fall on our faces. And Matthew tells us these three men, they fall down on their face. And then verse 8, Mark chapter 9, verse 8. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And if you write in your Bible at all, just underline Jesus only. And so I don't know how much you'll remember this message I was in a meeting, and I, I work here, you know. I was in a meeting on, on uh, Monday, and I won't, I won't name them by names, but we said, hey, you know, we were talking about the message. What was the message about? Somebody said who was not here. And uh, several of us were like, well, uh, I, I mean, it was basically, you know, we just kind of danced around, and then it hit us, right? So I don't know how much you're going to remember of this message, but if there's two words I would want you to take with you from the scriptures, these are not my words, but I think the Spirit speaks to us this morning. Jesus only. They open their eyes after this amazingly wild scene and they see Jesus. And again, to reference Matthew's gospel, he tells us that Jesus looks down at these three men who have just had the encounter of their lives. And Jesus speaks these words. Get up and fear not. Get up and fear not. Let me be as clear as I possibly can. The gospel of Jesus is not a get up and help yourself Pull your bootstraps up and just overcome whatever trial you have and then God will help you, okay? That's a false gospel. There are gonna be times in life where you need endurance. There's times in life when I need endurance. I got five kids, so I need some serious endurance, okay? There are times when I need to just, I need to press on, but let me be clear, the gospel of Jesus is not get up and fear not because you can do it. Right? That's psycho Bible. That's it's not it's not it won't work. It won't work. Some of you you tried really, really hard. It just won't work. I've tried that. The gospel of, of Jesus is actually this. Because I am holy, because you are in this case kneeling in my presence, because I have shown you I am glorious, I am God, in light of that then you can get up and then you will have no fear and then you can look and see another day and so my friend who was in this 11 o'clock service last week young man who uh, Liz and I got to lead their premarital uh, teach the premarital class that they were in two weeks into his young marriage his father dies unexpectedly and this young 
groom and this young bride are staring death in the face. The gospel of Jesus for them is not, you need to get up and you need to fear not because these things happen and you're going to have to overcome it and you'll be fine. It's not the gospel of Jesus. As we mourn with them, as we comfort them, it's going to be a long road, but the gospel of Jesus is in light of Jesus' holiness. He he is offering comfort to you. And in light of that, there will be a day where he may actually just be able to pick you up. And instead of living in fear, instead of living in sorrow, there will be a day of joy that's coming and there will be days lived without the fear that you're experiencing. So I don't want us to get confused this morning because uh, those are two very different gospels. And the latter is what I would offer to you today when we see the words Jesus only. We are a church that says this often. We have a radical focus on Jesus. How many of you heard that? Just raise your hand. You've heard us say that. We have a radical focus on Jesus. Well, what does that mean exactly? I mean, I remember coming here for the first time. By the way, I, 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 we, my wife and my family, we just attended here for a year and a half. So I, I heard that a lot. I'm like, well, what? okay, I like that. But what does that mean exactly? So I want you just to imagine this with me. You and I are worshipers. Worship, and I'm not talking about music, although that's a small piece of it, but you and I live life as worshipers. We worship something. And can you just imagine for a minute that as worshipers, the way we engage our neighbors, the way that we open the scriptures, the way that we get in our closet and we're still with God and he says to us, "Be, be quiet, listen to me. The way that we encounter a stranger, the way that we open our doors, the way that we recognize, hey, there's human trafficking going on in our city. No, right? All of these things are acts of worship. And if you could just paint this picture, I don't want you to get dizzy, all right? But just imagine that all of that worship just starts to gain some momentum and it starts to cycle. All of us as worshipers, we contribute to this and we're, it, it, it's revolving around something. What it means to have a radical focus on Jesus is that in the center of that revolving is Jesus and Jesus only. And for me, I just got other stuff that I'm trying to toss in there. I love when my bank account actually got some money in there, right? I love when I have the security of a job. I love when I have the security of everything's great at home, and it's not always, right? I love these things that I hold tightly to, and honestly, as our worship is revolving, sometimes my stuff starts to sneak into the middle of that pile. And instead of Jesus only, I got Jesus plus, 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 plus. And now he can't satisfy me because I need satisfaction from all these other things. Anybody relate to that? Anybody. Radical focus on Jesus says our worship revolves around something. And it's either Jesus or it's Jesus plus, plus a bunch of stuff. John Piper says it like this. Bless you. John Piper would say bless you too. I know he would. Uh, he says the primary way to become more and more like Christ is to lift the veil and fix your gaze on his glory and hold him in view in other words we are transformed into his image by looking at his glory you become like what you constantly behold you become like what you constantly behold I become what I'm constantly beholding And so as my worship, my life is lived revolving around Jesus. If I'm starting to toss some stuff in there that's not of him, my gaze is transfixed on something other than him. What does it mean for Jesus only in this passage? 
It's to gaze on the glory, to take any kind of veil that you got and just to go, I don't have all the answers, but my eyes are fixed on you. And I want to be a part of a church where our eyes are fixed on you. It's not a bunch of buildings. It's not what we're going to accomplish as an organization. It's not going to be our status. Who cares about that stuff, honestly? Radical focus on Jesus, personally and together as a family by you city. There are three things, and we're done here. Three things, and we're done. This is what we know from this passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 9. This is what we know to be certain. Christ will be glorified. We will see his glory. Christ will be glorified. Yesterday, today, forevermore, his glory will not end. Christ will be glorified. Number two, there will be witnesses to that glory. In this case, there are three who witnessed a pretty powerful moment. And then Jesus, as he ascended into heaven, says, hey, I'm actually leaving part of me. I'm, we're, we're sending a helper, a comforter. So we're not left to just go, man, I wonder what that looks like. That must be amazing. But the spirit of God, as we fix our eyes, not physical eyes, but spiritual eyes, uh, we can be witnesses to that or we can leave that aside. Christ will be glorified. There will be witnesses. And then lastly, through Christ, we can stand in the presence of God. What was not possible in the day of Moses, all these roadblocks in order just to get glimpses of God is now bust wide open and through Christ we stand in the glory of God and so God we pray to you together as a family we've spoken a lot of words out loud yet the two words that jump off the pages to us say Jesus only and says we open our spiritual eyes may we see nothing else but Jesus and in light of his presence we hear these words over and over Monday Tuesday Wednesday every day of the week on mountaintops and in uh, death's valley may we hear the words of Jesus spoken over our lives get up and fear not. We sing, we gather, we pray in the name of Jesus.